Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old-fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Coralyn Ada Emke. She's a software developer and activist who in recent years has helped produce major shifts in the culture of open source software communities. She was the creator of the Contributor Covenant, a code of conduct that has been adopted by tens of thousands of projects, including Linux and Creative Commons. Now she is the founder of the Ethical Source Movement, an effort to enable software developers to attach ethical provisions to their code. And together we're going to be exploring the question, of whether software can handle ethics. I've been using what is known as free or open source software since I was a teenager. I run various flavors of of Linux operating systems on my computers and write my books and articles in Emacs, a program first developed by hackers in the 1970s. I'm not any sort of tech wizard, and it can be challenging to use all this stuff sometimes, but I love it. I love that my tools come from communities, Uh, not just from companies trying to milk me for profit. All this is possible because of uh, some creative licensing uh, where where software developers uh, kind of inverted intellectual property licenses to say that I share this code with the community and nobody can restrict its use. So with this clever hack on on intellectual property licenses on copyright, they created a commons, uh, a shared pool of software resources that many of us really all of us probably are using every day, even if we don't know it in the Android operating system or the servers running the websites we visit and and much, much more. But those communities are not always the utopias they're made out to be. Open source developers, for instance, tend to be far more white and male than developers in general, which are already in the United States very white and male. Um, And these communities have also been havens for abusive and exclusionary cultures. Our guest, Coralyn Adia Emke, has made some major strides toward changing that. Uh, Once open source projects resisted adopting basic codes of conduct uh, uh, in their conferences and their communities as somehow oppressive or unnecessary, her clear and simple contributor covenant changed that. I've adopted it myself in a community that I manage, and afterward a problem that had been vexing us for months was resolved within a week. Now she's leading the ethical source movement, which I should note I have joined and have been part of uh, co-organizing in a minor way. Its mission is to create strategies that empower software communities to prevent their work from being used in ways they find ethically repugnant. Above all, it is one more effort to help tech culture grow up, to take responsibility for its power. Coraline Ada Emke, welcome to Looks Like New. Thank you so much for having me today. To get us started, could you tell us a bit about what kind of software developer you are? What what kinds of things do you like to build? And and when did you discover that those are the things you'd like to build? Well, uh, I got my start pretty early on. I was I had the privilege of being in a household where we had a a computer from a very young age. And um back then when I was getting started and uh 
this was quite a while ago, not to date myself, but uh, the main way that you got games and other applications on your computer was by typing them in from the back of magazines. So uh, I did quite a bit of that and uh, kind of picked up some things about code along the way because I'm typing in the code that is, you're not just typing in the name. You're actually typing in the full program for the game. I I never had to do that, (laughs) (laughs) but I've seen those magazines and been grateful that I never had to do that. Yeah. It was great though, because, uh, you know, I got to read the code and get an understanding of what was going on. Um, so, uh, I took computer classes in high school and I was all set for a career as a programmer. And um, then I got to college and I took my first CS class and it was a disaster. Um, Not that I wasn't prepared for it. I just wasn't prepared for it. (laughs) And what I mean by that is um, we had a semester long project to build software for an ATM, which I didn't think would take me all semester. And uh, just the way the class was laid out, the way the uh, curriculum worked, it was just a whole lot of drudgery. And it wasn't really aimed at someone who already had some proficiency. So I really struggled with the class. I had a lot of trouble getting motivated. I had a lot of trouble focusing. It just didn't seem like it didn't seem right for me. It wasn't what I was used to with the programming I'd done on my own and with the consulting I'd done in high school. Um, So I thought, you know, if this is what computer programming is going to be like as a career, there's no way in the world that I can do this. There's, I just, I'll be miserable. There's no way. So I ended up uh, changing majors and eventually dropping out. But I kept up my my hobby of programming. And um, then the internet happened. And uh, I remember I was uh, I was outside um, taking a break, and one of the uh, one of the company's um, IT people came up to me. We'd had conversations before because we had a lot in common. So I was, you know, I was friends with a lot of the software developers and the IT folks. So this one day, one of them comes up to me and says, hey, the company's going to be building a website. We're founding a web team. And I was like, oh, that's great. Get the company on the, uh, on the internet. Yeah, this was 1995. And um, he said, what do you think that's going to do for your career? And I honestly had not even gone back to thinking about development as a career. It seemed like something that I was very eager to do in my free time. But uh, but this was a great opportunity, and it it fell on my it fell on my lap by, you know, being in the right place in the right time and having had good conversations with folks before. So that was my first professional tech job, and that was about twenty six years ago. And so, what kinds of things? you know, most interest you now, what are you involved in, in building as a developer lately? Well, um, I'm pretty senior on my role these days. So, uh, I don't get to write code quite as much as I would like to on my job. I do a lot of architecture and design and planning and coordinating and, um, setting standards and, um, a whole lot of community work actually to take care of the, uh, to take care of the engineers at Stitchfix where I work. We have about 200 engineers, and um, I care very deeply about the culture, so I do a lot of work on our on our technical culture, but also I care a lot about the technology, obviously. So I pretty much split my time between focusing on evolving our very complicated technology systems and focusing on evolving our culture at the same time, because I believe those two things go hand in hand. 
And that ties in nicely with, uh, with the work that I do outside of my day job. Now, how did that, that work outside of your job start to your day job start to, to come about? How did you start perceiving that something was wrong with some of the cultures and communities that you were part of? Well, um, I had what I refer to as a great awakening in, um, 2013. And this is when I was really gearing up in earnest for my gender transition. And um, one of the things that I that I decided to do, there's a uh, there's a quote that's attributed to Winston Churchill. It might be apocryphal, but it goes, uh, "If you find yourself in hell, keep driving." <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I saw myself as as going through this period of like immense personal turmoil and literally changing almost every aspect of my life. And I thought, well, this is a great chance of self improvement. <laughs> So uh, so I looked at the people in the technology field who I admired the most, and I wrote down what I admired most about them. And one of, the, one of the recurring themes that I saw was a real commitment to social justice in tech. And um, I found that very inspiring. And um, I had a lot of ideas, and I, but I hadn't had a lot of experience. I had been you know, living and working as a... Uh, as a cisgender passing person for a long time with all the privilege that comes along with that. And there was simply a lot about the world that I had not been exposed to. So when I actually uh, transitioned in 2014, there was like this whole new world of challenges and problems and opportunities that I saw open up. And I knew that I wanted to make my mark. I wanted to, you know, use my privilege, use my years of experience, use my everything I had um, to try and make tech better. Because you know, I was a I was a kid with no college experience, working at a crappy day job for an engineering company, and an opportunity fell in my lap, and it was absolutely life changing. I don't know what I would have done if without this career in tech, and I know I would not be as as stable and well provided for and secure as I am working in this field. And I want everyone, regardless of where they come from, what their life has been like, who they are, what they bring to the table. I want everyone to have that same kind of opportunity to turn their lives around. And a big part of that starts with the culture of the technology industry in general and open source in particular with the special role it plays in onboarding new folks into the, uh, into the field. And um, I saw a lot of problems and I decided I would do everything in my power to try and make it better, to try and fix things as best I could. Now I was just uh, refreshing my, um, my syllabus for the course I teach on hacker culture. And I was, uh, and in that course we read an essay of yours from, I believe about that time, on the um, on meritocracy, and it, you know, was that a you know was that was that one of the main themes of this kind of awakening? Well, uh, it took me a little while to to land on meritocracy. Um, as I started thinking and and researching some of the systemic problems that we have in tech, um, I really saw that uh, I really saw that meritocracy was the root of the culture and also a root 
also the root of a lot of the problems that we face in our culture. Now, why is that? Because probably lots of people think about meritocracy as, you know, as, as a good thing. You know, it's, it's, it's often a positive term in, in our society. Yeah, it looks great on paper until you get into the, uh, the details, like what does merit mean and how do you measure merit? Um, if meritocracy is actually a good system, if it's actually a valid system for determining um, the worth and value of a human being, then if we accept that, we also have to accept that cisgender heterosexual white males have a special disposition that makes them perfectly suitable and in fact makes them excel in a system like this. So you either have to, de- you either have to decide that cisgender heterosexual white males are superior technologists just innately, or you have to suspect that there's something broken in the system. And um, all evidence points to something being broken in the system. Mm-hmm. Now, did, were there particular experiences in the process of that gender transition where you saw that brokenness come forward? You know, you're the same person, you know, throughout the process, you were someone who has the same skills. Were there ways in which you saw the system respond to you differently based on how you were presenting your gender identity? For the first time in my entire career, I had people questioning my abilities instead of starting from a default position of assuming that I knew what I was doing and assuming that I knew what I was talking about and uh, assuming that my work was good. um, I suddenly faced a whole lot of scrutiny that I had never faced before. And um, saw a whole lot of obstacles go up that I hadn't personally experienced before. And I started hearing from people as I, you know, as I established myself in the community as an activist, as someone who's doing social justice, people started coming to me with their, with their stories and with their challenges and with their problems. And I saw just how widespread it really was. And, you know, it was something new for me. It was a new experience for me, but this is something that, um, women and people of color and black folks were facing all along. And uh, it wasn't until it started happening to me that I saw, you know, just how fundamental some of these problems are and like exactly what a lot of folks are facing when they, when they try to get engaged in the technology industry, when they try to engage with open source, um, you know, that's when it all became clear. And, and I'm not the kind of person who can just say, oh, well, that sucks. I guess, uh, someone will have to fix that. I'm the person who likes to go in and try and fix it. What were your early attempts to try to do something about it? Aside from the uh, from the writing and speaking that I did um, around some of the, uh, the open source power structures and dynamics and social structures, um, around the same time, there was, a, there was a major war going on in the technology industry around conferences and it sounds silly to bring it up now, but you know, six or seven years ago, the idea of a code of conduct for a conference was controversial and it was a fight to normalize that. And uh, that's something I was very actively involved in. And um, it occurred to me that, uh, that conferences, although they play a, a very important role in, uh, in how we communicate and how we network and everything that we do. Um, that was just one kind of social situation that 
technologists and open source developers find themselves in. But we spend most of our time in online communities. Um, we are interacting with project maintainers who run open source projects. We're you know contributing code. We're opening issues. All of these are social interactions. And um, so I thought to myself, if we need a code of conduct for in-person events, why do we not have them also for our communities? And that led to the development of the Contributor Covenant in 2014. Now, what what kinds of conduct spurred this? Uh, you know, was it my sense is that it, a lot of it has to do with like sexual harassment at these conferences? Is that is that right? Were there was there a kind of upsurge of of um, uh, concerns about the kinds of things that were going on while these conferences went on without any kinds of rules set? Yeah, there was there was quite a bit that uh, some of it overt, but also a lot of it kind of under the surface that made people feel unsafe. And uh, the powers that be were not paying attention to the feelings and safety of people who didn't look like them. Um, it's an empathy problem to a, to a large extent. Um, conferences are essential to professional growth and development and networking and finding that next job. And we were not making conferences safe for a whole lot of people. Um, so... You know, getting a code of conduct is a first step. That's table stakes. And uh, the same war that we fought over conferences is still being fought today over open source projects. There, I still get daily harassment, threats, um, misgendering, hara- misgendering harassment, um, personal attacks. This is ongoing. It's been a steady stream of of harassment and fighting um, for the past seven years. So uh, this is really not a settled issue in open source communities. The contributor covenant is a you know it's a pretty brief and straightforward statement of you know some some uh, rules that shouldn't be too controversial about about harassment and abuse and. Um, and 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 some steps that people might take to address those kinds of behaviors. Uh, why was this so hard for people to, for especially the organizers of these conferences, to accept? And and what what did what started to change that? What started? You know, this is now a very very widely adopted document. What started to um, uh, bring people around to becoming open to adopting a simple set of rules? Well. Uh... One of the reasons that it was so controversial is because it, because it challenged the status quo. And this is a recurring theme throughout my entire life. I always get myself in trouble by questioning the status quo. Um, and the status quo serves a lot of people very, very well. A lot of people have done very well in the systems that we have set up today. And a lot of people are being left behind. And I think that, uh, that through the 2010s, as we saw... Um, more diversity coming into the tech field and coming into open source, it became, it was the right time to start thinking about, well, it's kind of late, but uh, it was uh, the best time we had. Um, It became urgent to start addressing some of these issues. And uh, honestly, I think, uh, I think a big part of what got momentum behind contributor covenant was the way the Ruby community 
which is a Ruby subprogramming language that I primarily work in and a community that I consider home, the Ruby community really embraced this. Um, not to say we didn't have conflicts and not to say that it didn't get heated sometimes, but the Ruby conferences came around to the notion of a code of conduct pretty quickly and started Ruby-related open source projects. And I think one of the uh, one of the big things that uh, that helped so much in the Ruby ecosystem, there's a uh, a dependency management tool. So it 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 uh it deals with the software that you use and the software that it needs to function. Um, and uh, this this uh, this program, this utility, also allows software developers to create programs that are intended for use in other applications and web apps or mobile apps or whatever. And um, so this tool added a feature that lets you set um, a code of conduct as a default step in creating your new application. Um, and uh, we made it easy. We reduced the friction around adding a code of conduct. And uh, we created incentives for it. Um, and that led to a behavior change. And um, that behavior change has been rippling outward from the Ruby community for the past seven years. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Today, we're talking with Coralyn Ada Emke about whether software can handle ethics. And we talked before about uh, the contributor covenant, uh, a code of conduct that uh, that Coraline developed and that became very widespread in open source communities. But I want to turn now to uh, to a new project, more recent project anyway, uh, uh, ethical source, the ethical source movement. Uh, Coraline, can you tell us a bit about where this came from? Where did what were some of the experiences or moments that the ethical source movement arose from? Well, for a long time, we've been seeing stories of um, tech companies abusing their power, abusing their monopolistic power, um, and putting users in in danger, not respecting privacy. Um, you know, we've seen a uh, there's a pattern of not being very responsible that uh, that run, runs rampant in the tech community. But what really brought it to a head for me um, was uh, in 2019, I believe it was in September. Um, there's an activist organization, a Latinx and Chicanx activist organization called Mahente, and I follow them on Twitter. And um, they had a they had a campaign that is still ongoing, actually called No Tech for Ice, um, specifically talking about the technology that our industry is providing to agencies like Immigration and Customs Enforcement that are then being used um, to create human rights violations and to conduct atrocities. And uh, it, it really made me reflect back on, you know, IBM in World War II. Are they, you know, were they, they provided census technology to the Nazis and their punch cards were actually on the trains that carried people to camps. I think, uh, I think it's time for technology organizations and individuals to start thinking about like 
the impact of what we do and how that impacts other human beings beyond our user base. So I saw this, uh, I saw this tweet from Mahinte, the series of tweets where they were calling out specific tech companies who had contracts with ICE and Border Patrol. And uh, other people saw these tweets as well. And one of the people that saw those tweets was Seth Vargo. Now, Seth Vargo is a pretty well-known um, open source developer, and he used to work for a company called Chef. And he did a Chef Makes Infrastructure um, software that helps other developers uh, bring their applications online and put them on the internet. And um, so Seth had done some open source work for Chef while he was employed there. And when he learned that his former employer had a nice contract, he felt like outraged that some of the work that he had done was being used in conjunction with human rights violations. So as an act of conscience, Seth pulled all of his code off of GitHub, which is where most open source code lives these days, and removed it from distribution. And this caused major chaos um, across the entire tech landscape because people were relying on those tools um, to get their software built, to get it launched, to get it released in the, into, uh, onto the internet. And suddenly this, this piece of infrastructure wasn't working anymore. And um, I saw what happened. GitHub restored the repos. Chef asserted intellectual property rights over Seth's open source code and um, the distribution services that make that make those libraries available widely um, restored little leader software. And um, that seemed like a real systemic failure, like the open source establishment, the open source powers that be had to respond to an act of conscience by siding with the human rights violators. And that, to me, is a major institutional failure. And when I saw that, once again, I felt that call. I felt that call to like use my power, use my privilege, and use my influence to make sure that we are better prepared in the future and that we're empowering developers, we're empowering creators to, to have some control over, their, over how their software is used. Not in every case, but I at least can we agree on not using software to create human rights violations, you know? And we are just, as, as an industry, we are not prepared to accept responsibility for what happens once we're done writing the code. And that's what has to change. What would it look like if all, you know, if, if the ethical source movement were successful? What, what do you think, how, how could you retell that story uh, of of uh, of chef uh, in the context of you know a successful ethical source movement. What options would be available to those developers? Again, coming back to uh, to the work I do at my day job, part of it is cultural, and part of it is technical. Um, from the cultural perspective, um, I think for a long time we've lived under the frankly the the delusion that technology is neutral, ignoring the fact that a uh, that political that our politics go into the way we build our software and the way we envision it being used. And also ignoring the fact that technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. Technology exists within a society, 
within a human society with rules, with power structures, with, you know, disparities, with injustice, with inequities. And, you know, what we've been doing for the past decades is saying, oh, someone else's problem. The tech is neutral. I'm going to focus just on creating the tech. Um, so I see a big part of the mission of the ethical source movement being getting creators and people involved in technology to at least acknowledge that their work does have a big societal impact and that what comes along with that tremendous impact is a tremendous responsibility. Um, we can't, we can't make it someone else's problem. We can't kick that down the road for someone else to deal with. So what the ethical source movement is trying to do is, uh, is attack the problem from multiple angles, uh, attack it as a social problem. How do the ways that we interact as technology communities lead to bad outcomes? How can we change them to make sure that we're leading in the majority of cases to outcomes that benefit society and that are just and equitable? Um, part of it is, is the technology itself, the way we design it. Are we thinking about not only the people who are going to be using the software, but the people on whom the software is being used? Are we designing for safety, for privacy, for accessibility, accessibility for people with um, people living with disabilities? That's a justice issue. That's an equity issue. That's not an afterthought. Um, and that's part of it. Licensing is a big part of it. Um, it's a it's a multifaceted problem, and uh, we have to attack it from multiple angles. And that's what we're trying to do with the ethical source movement. Now, what what kinds of engineering do you bring into it? I mean, the uh, you, you spoke earlier about how uh, making the um, adopting the contributor covenant easy or adopting a uh, code of conduct easy uh, really facilitated adoption. Uh, what, uh, you know, what kinds of, of tricks are you exploring for how, uh, how communities can, can, you know, if not make ethics easy, uh, make it at least a little bit easier than, than it is today? One of the things we're trying to do is establish some baselines. So uh, in, the, uh, in the 50s and 60s, there was a man named Edmund Berkeley who, uh, who did a lot of thinking and talking and tried to do a lot of organizing around the ethical responsibilities of software developers and computer scientists. And um, he was part of a uh, part of a committee, the Committee on Social Responsibility of Computer People. That's literally what they said. <laughs> they people. really called themselves computer people. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a nascent industry, um, nascent field. Um, so uh, they actually, uh, they laid out um, you know, some of the social responsibilities that they saw as being critical for, uh, for technologists to keep in mind and really to live by. And, um, one of the things they said, and this related to some criticism that my ethical open source license got, what they said is there are some activities which are unquestionably for social good. And there are some activities that are unquestionably for social ill. And they acknowledge that there's a huge gray area in between those two extremes. But what I'm trying to do is, can we at least agree on what is good, what is like unquestionably good, and what is unquestionably bad? And I'm hoping that the United Nations Human Rights Declaration 
that was signed by every country in the world that we can at least use that as a baseline. Like to start with, can we at least make it so that it's not, so that our tech is not, not enabling human rights violations? That's, that's clearly not in the gray area, you know, but we have a lot of work to do. Um, when, uh, with ethical licensing, with other, other initiatives that are, that are coming up with this movement, there's often a question posed of whose ethics do you use? And so we're trying to find the most general, the most widely agreed on, the most universal um, principles and really building off of those. That's our, that's our foundation. So discovering what those are. And then to your point, like with what happened with Bundler, how can we incentivize people? How can we make it easier? How can we make it part of their, their routine thinking, their routine work? How do we bake this in? And that's, uh, that's the question that we are trying to, uh, that we're trying to answer with the ethical source working group. And you talked earlier about like the, the UN declaration of human rights is one of the kind of touchstones of what a, you know, an ethical source rule set might look like. And you've developed proposed a license, uh, that software can adopt that, um, would, prohibit its use with violations of, of, you know, this international um, document. There are others as well, like the, a group of, of Chinese activists has, has developed this anti-996 license that um, targets the, uh, the common labor practice in the Chinese tech world of working from nine to nine each day for six days a week um, and, you know, associated with kind of overwork and burnout. Um, how, how many, do you think you need? I mean, is there a danger of, of, of too many of these ethical source licenses? Is, is the goal to, to uh, have uh, just a handful that, that um, everyone can kind of keep in one place or, or to, to create a much more widespread proliferation of different kinds of licenses? That's a super interesting question. And that's something that a lot of people in the open source establishment are also asking. Um, at, at the beginning, in the late 90s, when the term open source has only been in existence for like thir- uh, 23 years, 1998. In the beginning, there was a lot of license experimentation going on in traditional open source. And uh, it was a new idea. You know, frankly, using a software license to um, force corporations to adopt and maybe even contribute back to the digital commons. I mean, that's a big deal. And uh, using a license to do that was a very clever hack. And I use hack in the uh, traditional sense as in a very creative solution to a very difficult problem. And, uh, <clears throat> and over time, it, was, it, was, it became necessary to stabilize that, li- that licensing collection, that licensing ecosystem. And so a lot of open source establishment organizations started tackling the problem of license proliferation. But I think that with ethical source, we're, we're, we're reliving those early days of open source in a lot of ways. We're rediscovering what the rules are and we're trying different things out. This is a period of a lot of experimentation. So I think, uh, I think over the next several years, at least, we're going to see a lot of ethical source licenses pop up. And some of them are going to are gonna have legs and some of them are not. But the important thing is that we're trying and we're we're attempting to use licensing. We're exploring licensing as a vehicle for bringing ethics to open source. And that's an experiment. 
and exactly how you do it, what which license you use, how the license is written, how you deal with enforcement, how do you tie back to a universal enough standard of ethics. These are things we're going to be exploring for years to come. So I'm not worried right now about a proliferation of licenses and even licenses that aren't ready for prime time. Licenses that are ideas that are still undeveloped. I think that's natural. and I think it's normal for where we are as a movement. And um, it's really an exciting time. Um, with the 966, the, the license you were talking about, there's the atmosphere license, which addresses climate change. We're really saying the big issues facing our society today um, coming to the open source world. And uh, people are bringing their concerns, their legitimate concerns about the state of the world back to open source and how we deal with that. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be very important moving forward. So I see license experimentation as just part of that process. As much as you compare what you're doing to uh, the early, um, the origins of, of open source in general, this effort has attracted the kind of ire and, and, and anger of a lot of the people who were involved in that, uh, in that early period. I think, particularly of Eric Stephen Raymond, who, uh, you know, has written really vicious things about this movement and about you personally, unfortunately. And, and you know, he's one of the people that uh, that helped first promote the idea of open source and and in some ways was a kind of was a kind of radical of his time, but now has turned against this effort. Can How do you understand the resistance that this effort is facing in the community uh, that uh, that has given rise to it? Remember what I said about the status quo? I do. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of people in open source who benefit from the status quo. And um, we're also, and, and, so, and we're challenging that. We're challenging some of the, the very fundamentals um, one of the one of the principles of free and open source software is what's referred to as freedom zero, and that is the freedom to use software for any purpose. And that's that's the sticking point. That's what we're really running into conflict with. And uh, a lot of people in the open source establishment, in the open source field in general, have very passionate feelings about about freedom zero, and they see software freedom as being a moral issue. And we're, I'm like, great. I'm glad you're thinking about moral issues. We have some more for you to think about. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, a lot of people have profited from the way open source is set up and uh, it exploded. You know, I don't think the founders understood the impact that they were going to have on the technology landscape and indeed on the culture back in those early days. But a lot of their thinking was informed by a particular breed of political thinking that runs rampant, frankly, in Silicon Valley and this libertarianism. And um, the notion of libertarianism, it is very individual-centric, very, very individual-centric, and um, not very community-minded. And I think what we're seeing might be a fundamental conflict between the politics of the open-source founders and the politics of open source practitioners today. Right, because if you are going to make ethical commitments about a project, a group of people might be working on that project together. They, Those people have to somehow agree about 
uh, what they're going to, what kinds of commitments they're making, what kinds of standards they're setting. Have you have you seen uh, conflicts within open source communities uh, about whether to adopt uh, an ethical source license or whether to wade into these waters at all? Um, there's a lot of hesitancy. We have, you know, we have some early adoptions with the license. The license is only a year old and went through a major revision in, Mar- in March. I wouldn't say it was uh, that it was really ready for use until March when we arrived at the uh, the 2.1 version. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of people are, are kind of taking a wait-and-see attitude. They want to see if this idea, the idea of ethical licensing, has legs. And um, so we haven't seen major adoptions yet by, by very large-scale projects. And we very well um, may never. And in fact... Uh, you know, I think that uh, that looking at adoptions is a holdover from the other open source movement, um, where you know adoptions lines up very well with the capitalist notion of of uh, of you know consumer behavior mm-hmm. and of product success. Um, if you sell a lot of something, you're making money off of it. But if you give away a lot of open source. Um, software, if your open source project is very successful, it actually is detrimental to you as a maintainer because that means your workload's gone up and the demands being put on you have gone up and you are now a critical piece of someone's infrastructure and they don't care that you're doing this as a side project from your day job. Um, so these things have real impact. But uh, I think uh, I think adoptions shouldn't be measured quantitatively when we're talking about ethical licensing, I think they should be, they should be considered qualitatively. Um, I don't care so much if a project that I, that I created gets adopted by fortune 500 companies. That's not a success for me. What's a success for me is knowing that an NGO in Africa has used my software, has used ethically licensed software to bring water to a remote village. That is infinitely more impactful to me, more important for me than Facebook using my software. So I think we we also have to change our thinking about what success looks like and look at the social good, look at the outcomes. That's what it's all about is looking at the outcomes, not the intent, not how we got there, but the out, the ethical outcomes that, that we're, uh, that we're striving for. And, you can't take a, a quantitative approach to social outcomes. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're talking with 
Coralyn Ada Emke, a software developer and activist, about the question of whether software can handle ethics. Uh, Coralyn, you know, we've been talking about the um, ethical source movement and this this turn toward enabling software developers to put ethical commitments alongside their code. But I, I want to bring up a question again that you, you've raised a little bit already as well uh, about whether it's really right to put all this responsibility on, on engineers. Shouldn't this stuff, you know, as many pe- critics of, of this movement have said, be handled in, in public policy and you know, what if the engineers are, are wrong? Uh, is, is this the really the right place to be raising these questions uh, about, about the ethics of, of how we use technology? Is it important to instill in our children a, a sense of right and wrong? Or is it best to leave it to the police to arrest my child when they break the law? <laughs> that's, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Um, we absolutely have to be thinking about it. Um, as we've seen, you know, we, our lawmakers don't understand how Facebook works. How do we expect them to pass legislation that will actually be impactful when it comes to the intersection of technology and society? That's unrealistic. That's not where we are today. And um, when governments are carrying out programs of human rights abuses and violations, you also can't expect them to regulate themselves. Bad state actors are a major problem. The United States government is committing human rights atrocities at the border. You can't expect the United States government to say, oh, we should pass laws to make it harder for us to do this thing that we're trying to do on purpose, right? That's not going to work. We have to look at multifaceted, multi-pronged approaches. And uh, I think the whole whole argument of making it about policy and, and law is just another way that we're trying to kick that can down the road and say that we're not responsible for what happens with the things that we create. And uh, the time the time for that kind of thinking, I think, is behind us. And what kinds of what kinds of unintended consequences might emerge from this? I mean, like I I think, for instance, here in Colorado, right about the 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 Supreme court case with the Colorado baker who wouldn't bake for gay weddings. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, this has become at the center of question of whether a creator can control um, the uses of their, of their creation. And, and for instance, JavaScript, a major web technology was invented by somebody who is, you know, also has also been involved in opposing gay marriage um, so it raises questions about whether within the context of ethical source, um, there are lines about what is acceptable or appropriate as, as lines that the communities are able to draw or not. Or are we opening the door for um, a really diverse and even conflicting range of ethical commitments? We absolutely are. There's no way to get around the fact that ethics is a very tricky, very slippery concept that we've been wrestling with for all of human civilization. A software license doesn't change that. Ethics are always going to be comp- always going to be complicated, and it's always going to be a struggle to to figure out what the right thing, what the best right thing to do is. That doesn't go away. What we're trying to do is to pop the bubble that tech is in that makes tech workers and people in the tech field think that they don't have to face the same consequences or shoulder the same responsibilities as people in other industries do. 
um, we've been treating ourselves as special snowflakes for decades. And, uh, you know, engineering, public engineering, civil engineering, all of these fields that we draw inspiration from as software developers have codes of professional ethics. Um, this is something we've been wrestling with, um, you know, the during the entire industrial revolution, you know, um, perfection. And even, even before that, when you had, uh, when you had skilled craftsmen and artisans and trades workers belonging to guilds, there were standards and the tech industry is coasted by without any standards, without an ethical code, without even an agreement on, you know, on if they're, if they're, if their work has consequences, like not, not only what those consequences are, but are there consequences at all? We then, we then isolated and we then treating ourselves as a special case for too long. And, uh, it's, it's time for that to change. I firmly believe that. that that's an interesting, um, comparison, right? Because in the context of, of, you know, the civil engineers, for instance, or lawyers, right? Um, there's a kind of industry-wide set of standards that are adopted by a professional body that people essentially have to be members of in order to, to practice. Um, why, ta- why not take that strategy for software developers? Why take this kind of um, project-centered approach where particular projects might adopt particular, um, particular licensing regimes? Because it's not on either or, um, we have to attack this problem of of responsibility, of social responsibility, from multiple angles. We have to have a legal angle. That's what licensing. That's where licensing comes in. We have to have a social contract. That's where codes of conduct come in. Um, we there are so many ways, so many angles that we need to attack this problem from, um, because it is a big, hairy, complicated problem, and no one strategy. It's going to solve that problem. It has to be a multifaceted approach. It uh, and like I said earlier in the program, a lot of it comes down to empathy. Um, as software developers, we are not comfortable with empathy. We're not comfortable with empathy toward the people that we work with, toward our users. And we have an entire branch of our field whose job it is to convince software developers that user experience matters. <laughs> you know. Um, we have a lot of work to do and we have to approach it from multiple angles, um, in order to make progress. One of the things that is kind of surprising or might seem surprising, uh, about the trajectory of, of open source is here. This is a movement that's about, um, about keeping software free and open for anyone to use. Uh, it was initially attacked by a lot of large software corporations, Microsoft most famously, and, and so forth. And now Microsoft has has adopted this movement in, in tremendous ways, such as by buying GitHub itself and, uh, and, and much more. Um, do you see already signs where companies, um, which at first might seem like they'd be inclined to resist these any more restrictions on how they use software. Have you seen uh, them start to step in and say, actually, we do want these kinds of restrictions and, and we want to um, turn them toward our own purposes? How is this playing out in the corporate scene? Um, companies are not going to be very eager to embrace things that place limitations on them or that bring them under scrutiny. 
So I don't think we're going to see Facebook say, yes, ethical licensing. Yes, ethical source. Because that runs counter to their business model of, uh, of surveillance capitalism. And we have to recognize we do live in a capitalist society. Um, and companies are not going to do the right thing for the purpose of doing the right thing. Um, corporations are amoral. And some would argue that their amorality makes them immoral. Um, but uh, a lot of the work that we're doing with the ethical source movement is trying to find ways to incentivize the behavior that we want to see. So how can we incentivize a corporation to accept restrictions on usage of software? Um, and one of the angles that we're approaching this from is um, supply chain management. Um, other industries, manufacturing, clothing, food, um, have ethical standards that they apply to their supply chains, both upstream and downstream. Um there's a lot of attention being paid to, you know, like bad labor practices in certain Asian countries, um, other issues like that, um, that are supply chain issues. They're being attacked or they're being approached from a supply, from an ethical supply chain aspect. And that's something that people can wrap their heads around. So that's one of the avenues we're exploring for incentivizing um, more socially conscious behavior among technology practitioners. But I also think that a lot of it's going to come from the ground up. Um, you know, just today we saw the uh, that uh, Google worker succeeded in creating a non-contract union. Um, that's where we're going to see the change happen. It's going to be individual developers and groups of developers, groups of technologists rather, um, who come together around a problem and set out to solve that problem within their companies or within their organizations. That's the way it's going to happen. But uh, but again tackling it from multiple from multiple multiple perspectives and with an open eye to the world that we live in how is the enforceability of these kinds of licenses and techniques looking right now i mean this is a uh, you know a question that open source has had to deal with over the years can their licenses really be legally enforced um, are you seeing evidence that that an ethical source license um, uh, such as one that that um, uh, includes the UN Declaration of Human Rights can be enforced in law. Well, um, one of the one of the things I wanted to do differently when I created the Hippocratic License, my ethical source, my ethical open source license, was to try and keep it out of the courts because um, the courts aren't great um, when it comes to issues of human rights. And again, we have like in the United States where you have a bad state actor. And can you really rely on the mechanisms of that state to police itself or to, to uh, introduce consequences for, uh, for having done the wrong thing? Um, so enforceability is, is a huge concern, and I wanted to keep it out of the court. So it just so happened that in December of 2019, about two months after the initial draft of the license, and at the same time, we'd engaged with the legal team to really polish it and really, really make it enforceable. At the same time, um, the Hague Rules for Business and Human Rights um, arbitration came out. And the timing could not have been better. It was, a, I think it was four or five years in the making. And this is from an international body. Um, they, they set out to create rules for, for mediating um, conflicts between businesses 
and there are human rights obligations. Um, so that's what we picked as our enforcement mechanism. Um, arbitration that calls for subject matter expertise, both on human rights and on intellectual property um, and on business concerns, which is expertise that a judge is unlikely to have. Um, bringing people together in the worst consequence with an open source license. If you get sued for violating a license, there's going to be, there's going to be damages. There's going to be a financial consequence. The consequence for violating an ethical source license is you have to stop using the software, which can be a major consequence for a company that has come to rely on it or an organization or a, a that can be agency. a major consequence, but that's not going to put them out of business. Mm -hmm. That's not going to, it's, it's going to be an inconvenience, but even with that inconvenience built into the enforcement mechanism, we're giving, we're giving companies a lot of runway before they have to stop using the software. So they will have time to, um, to come up with a replacement themselves or find an open source replacement or agree to change their behavior, which is the, the preferable outcome. Um, so it's not draconian, and we try to make it fair for all parties involved, and we try to level the playing field. And I'd also like to say that the first time the Hippocratic license goes to arbitration, the ethical source movement with our partner organizations will be providing legal counsel. So we are not going to leave the first the first case hang, um, whoever brings the first case hanging. We're going to fully support them. With, uh, with every resource that we have available um, to, uh, because that's going to be a monumental moment in the, mo in the history of the movement and a monumental move uh, moment in the history of open source. And uh, so we're really committed to making that, to making that happen in the best way possible. Well, that's quite an invitation uh, for people to, to start, uh, start trying it. So thank you for that. And thank you for, for, uh, for this conversation today. I really appreciate having you on the show. It's been great talking to you, Nathan. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new technology. We've been speaking with Coraline Ada Emke, a software developer and activist who's behind projects like the Contributor Covenant and the Ethical Source Movement. You can find out more about her work at where.coraline.codes. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab, and you can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you've liked what you've heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. Hope you'll join us again.